Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. I hope everyone's doing okay. And welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where today we are looking at Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade from 1989. This is the third out of, well, currently four Indiana Jones films, soon to be five, and for many people out there, it's actually considered to be the best film in the series. Do I agree? Do I even like this film? Well, you better listen on to find out. In terms of the format of the episode... We'll start with a little background information on the film, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film. Okay, let's get on with what is quickly becoming a tradition of this podcast, the dramatic intro. Right, you are a famous archaeologist who has battled evil on multiple occasions. Now, you are on to your next mission as your father has gone missing, searching for the one and only Holy Grail. You go off in search of him, and quickly find yourself tangled in an adventure, chasing after clue after clue, and battling evil Nazis. You know, as opposed to those really good Nazis. But little do you know, you are about to become a part of The Last Crusade. The Last Crusade was made for $48 million and made just over $474 million at the box office. So I think it's fair to say it was quite successful. When it came to the casting of young Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford was actually the one to recommend River Phoenix as they worked together on the film Mosquito Coast from 1986. Considering that River Phoenix was massively praised for this role, it's hard to argue that Harrison Ford was right to recommend him. According to Vic Armstrong, who was Harrison Ford's stunt double, 
Harrison Ford did most of his own stunts in this film. This led to Vic having to pull him aside to ask him to let him do his own job. When it came to the dialogue between Indiana Jones and his father, a ghostwriter, Tom Stoppard, was actually brought in to review these parts of the script. Initially, he received $120,000 for this job, but received another million after the film's success. Personally, I think this was a really good idea. As I've said in the past, I do think that George Lucas, the, the writer for Indiana Jones, is excellent. I think he's one of the best writers of all time, and he's definitely given us some of the greatest series of all time, because, well, he also did Star Wars. But it is undeniable he has extreme strengths and weaknesses, and subtle dialogue, I wouldn't say it's his best area. I mean, as much as I love them, you only need to look at the prequel series of Star Wars to realise that. Although, there is a part of me that would have liked to have seen the original script, as the dialogue between Indiana Jones and his father is one of the best parts of the film. It's one of the things that makes it stand out so much. When it came to the scene in the tomb underneath the library in the film, 2,000 rats were bred in order to fill the corridors. This was necessary as, well, Unsurprisingly, feral rats tend to have a lot of diseases on them. I will admit, though, feral or not, if I was an actor in this scene, I think the screams that I'd be emitting would be very, very real. I do not like the sound of this at all. Interestingly, when it came to the Nazi uniforms that were used in the book-burning scene, they were real uniforms that were found from an army surplus store, amongst other locations. Steven Spielberg, the director joked that all of the soldiers saluting in this scene should cross their fingers behind their back while they do so. In terms of the cast, as I'm sure will be of no surprise to anyone, Indiana Jones is portrayed by Harrison Ford. Sean Connery then plays his father, Professor Henry Jones. Alison Doody, known for playing Jenny Felix in the James Bond film A View to a Kill, plays Elsa Schneider. As already mentioned, River Phoenix plays the young Indiana Jones. And John Rhys-Davies returns as Salah. Okay, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. And, well, as usual with these films, I'm just going to put out a little disclaimer first. I'm an Egyptologist. This film is largely not based on Egypt. However, it is based on a lot of Christian artefacts and things like that. So, unsurprisingly, like the Holy Grail. I will say I personally find this subject really interesting. Um, I have researched it. I've, I've actually read the Bible all the way through. Although it is fair to say that the Holy Grail doesn't really appear in the Bible. It's just sort of a cup in the Bible. Um, the idea of the Holy Grail doesn't actually come around until the 12th century. I mean, we don't actually know who started the legend of the Holy Grail, and the chances are we never will. But the earliest mention of the Holy Grail that survived comes from a poem which is called Percival, the Story of the Grail. This was written by a French poet named Chrétien de Troyes. I really apologise as usual if I'm butchering that, but he was also likely the person who came up with the character of Lancelot, in the myth-slash-legend of King Arthur and the Round Table. He wrote Percival, the story of the Grail, somewhere between 1182 AD to 1190 AD. 
And that's our earliest mention that we have currently of the Holy Grail. And basically since then, the myth just continued to grow and grow and evolve slowly over time. Okay, anyway, let's start going over the film. So the film starts in 1912 in Utah, where young Indiana Jones, portrayed as already said by River Phoenix, is trying to stop Tomb Raiders from stealing the cross of Coronado. So this scene begins with Indiana Jones and his friends sort of ducked down in a tomb watching the Tomb Raiders. And as soon as Indiana Jones sees the cross, he just goes, oh, that's the cross of Coronado that was given to him in 1520 by Cortez. I mean, I'm sorry, but this cross looks... I mean, it's made of gold, fair enough, but other than that, it's pretty generic. How on earth would he know this just by glimpsing it? That makes no sense whatsoever. Also, although Coronado is a real person, in 1520, he would have only been sort of 11 or 12 years old. So, again, timing-wise, this doesn't really make sense. The cross that's being talked about here in general is just a made-up artefact. It, it's not real. That being said, Coronado is actually a really interesting person. So, he was a Spanish explorer who, in 1538, was appointed the governor of New Galicia, which is a region in Mexico. It was from here that two years later he set off on an expedition with the goal of finding seven fabled golden cities, which according to another explorer, Cabeza de Vaca, were located in North Mexico and were filled with gold, silver and precious jewels. Coronado set off with 300 soldiers as well as things like priests, guides and blacksmiths, and searched for two whole years. Although he never found the cities, as, well, they probably don't exist, this expedition did make several important discoveries, as Coronado and his companions became the first ever Europeans to find locations like the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River. His adventures, as well as admittedly his probably not-so-nice interactions with the Native American tribes, also went down in folklore and inspired many later explorers. Basically put, although realistically by modern standards he probably wasn't a particularly nice person, his expedition here is an incredibly important part of both Mexican and American history. Moving on, later we move forward to when Indiana Jones is an adult and he is teaching a class in a lecture hall. Here he claims that archaeology is not about lost treasure and exotic places. There are no maps leading to ancient treasure, and X never marks a spot. Yeah, that's pretty accurate, actually. Archaeology is often far less glamorous than people make it out to be. I actually quite like this scene because it just seemed a little bit self-aware, because frequently in the Indiana Jones series... Indiana Jones is following a map to what is essentially X marking the spot. And if anything, this film just takes that all to the next level. So I think this is actually quite a nice little tongue-in-cheek jab at itself, which I like that. I think it's quite a nice little self-aware joke. As the students are leaving, he reveals that next week they will be looking at Egyptology with the excavation of Necratis by Flinders Petrie in 1885, <laughs> I get to talk about Egyptology. And actually, Necratis is a really interesting city because it was the first permanent Greek settlement in Egypt. 
The earliest finds from this city date to the reign of Samtek I, who reigned from about 664 to 610 BCE. So he died over 300 years before Ptolemaic Egypt would begin, which was a time period when the Greeks basically ruled over Egypt. The settlement was actually rediscovered in the 1880s by villagers who were digging in the area. And unfortunately, by the time Flinders Petrie did start his excavations, which ran from 1884 until 1885, a lot of the site had already been looted and there had been quite a bit of damage done. As such, Flinders Petrie was very much against the clock with this excavation, and by modern standards, it was all a bit haphazard. He managed to get quite a lot of the stuff back, but he also did cause a lot of destruction himself as he mainly focused on the religious aspects of the settlement rather than, say, trade and things like that, which in hindsight is a real shame, as the very point of the settlement was to be a trade colony. The ruins of the city are located in the Delta, so northern Egypt, and according to Herodotus, it was the only legal outlet for Greek wares in Egypt during the 7th and 6th century BCE, so during the 26th dynasty essentially. And it was through this settlement that you started to see some Greek influence come into Egypt, but also a lot of Egyptian influence go out into Greece as well, and you see changes in architecture in Greece and things like that. That's not to say that the religious aspects of the settlement that Flinders Petrie was looking at weren't both interesting and important, they were. Some of the finds suggest that there was a mixture of Greek and Egyptian religious practices at the site. So for instance, you find quite a few Egyptian votive offerings and things like that at the site, but there were also temples to Greek gods such as Apollo and Hera. This is really interesting because typically in ancient Egypt, if you moved to the country, you had to adopt its customs and mannerisms. A lot of people even adopted Egyptian names so that they would fit in. So these finds kind of suggest that the Greeks were allowed to remain Greek and to keep their culture as it was, which was a real deviation from the typical way people would move into Egypt. And that's not to say that the Egyptians weren't getting anything from this. First of all, like I said, they were getting a lot of wares from the Greek world, but they were also putting heavy taxes on the trade going on, so there was a lot of wealth to be made here as well. Basically put, this is a really important site that sadly we don't know as much as we could have known about. Moving on, when Indiana Jones first meets Walter Donovan in the film, Walter gets him to look at an inscribed slab of stone and to kind of like analyse it and translate it. Indiana Jones immediately claims that it's 12th century and contains early Latin script on it. First things first, 12th century and early Latin doesn't really make sense. The first Latin scripts come from well over 1,500 years before the 12th century AD. And also, just looking at the Latin on here, a very quick glance can tell you that it's not early Latin. Because in early Latin, you didn't get the letter U. Basically, instead of a U, typically you had a V instead. And quite clearly, on this script, there's both Vs and Us. If anything, it very much looks like Latin from the 12th century AD. Walter then goes on to talk about Joseph of Arimathea, 
and claims that he was entrusted with the Holy Grail. After this, it went missing for a thousand years before it was discovered by three knights of the First Crusade, who were brothers. First things first, Joseph is mentioned in all of the canonical, <laughs> I can't say that, canonical gospels, and basically is said to have assumed the responsibility of the burial place of Jesus Christ. It was not until the Middle Ages that he was connected with the Holy Grail. As for the story about the three brothers finding the Holy Grail, as far as I'm aware, this isn't a real story. I believe it was just made up for the film. Normally, the story from the Middle Ages is that Joseph was in captivity where the Holy Grail helped him to remain alive. Then, when he was released, his followers took the Grail to England, but Joseph remained behind. So, for this reason, I feel that the three brothers are probably made up for the film. Though, if there is someone out there who's listening who's more knowledgeable on the subject, please do get in contact with me and correct me. Right, so moving even further forward in the film, we go to a point where Indiana Jones finds a tomb underneath a library in Venice. This is a really classic scene, which I'll talk about a bit more in the review as well. But for now, I'm just going to focus on, well, essentially the archaeology that's being done here because, uh, well, first of all, it's not archaeology and secondly, it's atrocious. First things first. So they're in the tomb, they walk along, and then Indiana Jones decides to kick down a wall. Like, he just goes up to a wall, he sees a symbol on it, and then starts kicking it and smashing his shoulder in it to knock it down. As you can imagine, this wouldn't fly in archaeology for a start let's say you do need to take this wall down you do it a lot more carefully than is being shown here and there would be a load of pictures taken there would be loads of measurements taken everything would be done to document this before it was taken down also there's just a very good chance that it wouldn't be taken down because that would be hugely destructive and because well, ultimately, we're talking about a tomb here. There are ethics to take into account as well. Speaking of ethics, when Indiana Jones is through the wall, he then deliberately knocks a human skeleton from its resting place into the water below. He then grabs one of the bones from the skeleton, wraps a bit of cloth around it, which, by the way, he also tore off of the body, and then dips this in the water. He then talks about how the water is actually almost pure petroleum and then lights the arm on fire and makes it into a torch. I mean, words can't even begin to describe how unethical this is. This would be horrific to see. Also, if the water below him is basically pure petroleum, maybe he shouldn't be setting light to things. Like, I'm pretty sure flashlights did exist at this point. When they finally find the coffin they are searching for, they then decide to push the lid off of the coffin and allow it to crash onto the ground, and presumably that also falls into the petroleum. So, again, not great. Maybe be a little bit more careful here. However, in fairness, in the coffin, there's a shield with an inscription on it. And rather than actually taking the shield, Indiana Jones decides to take, like, a tracing of the inscription instead. This is really good, actually. This, this makes a lot of sense. So this doesn't technically fall under archaeology. It falls under epigraphy. So the study of writing, essentially. But this is what you would do because it's the least destructive way of getting that inscription and nothing has to move. Great. That all is perfectly fine. Although shortly after this, he then 
deliberately tips the coffin over, scattering both the body and the shield into the petroleum. So, I mean, that's not great. I mean, admittedly, he's doing this to survive flames as are coming directly towards him. But I feel there must have been another way he could have survived this. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about in this section is the final location of the film. Basically, in the film, the Holy Grail is kept in a rather spectacular rock-cut tomb. This is actually a real location. It's called Al-Khosna and it's in Petra. In Arabic, Al-Khosna means the treasury. And this comes after a legend of the place where it's basically said that the pharaoh that chased Moses through the Red Sea survived with some of his armies. And basically, the idea is that he created this location by magic in order to store his treasure. Now, obviously, this story isn't real. It, it's a myth. In reality, this location was built in the first century AD as a mausoleum and crypt for Aretas IV. So, Aretas IV was the king of a tribe known as the Nab Nabataeans, who were essentially a nomadic tribe that established a wealthy trading community in Petra, which was the key junction for like the Silk Road and spice trade between China and India and the Mediterranean. Overall, as I suppose is highly unsurprising, this film is pretty awful when it comes to history. As I feel like I've said with all of the Indiana Jones films up to this point, we are not talking about an archaeologist here, we are talking about a tomb robber. And worse, a tomb robber that does not hesitate to cause an incredible amount of damage wherever possible. Also, there's just a lot of little things that don't quite add up. Like, for instance, that part where he, say, says early Latin script on a 12th century slab of stone. Latin had been around for well over 1,500 years by that point, and the script on there just quite clearly isn't old Latin because there's U's and V's present. Essentially, I would say... This film takes real historical places, people and events, and then just kind of does what it wants with them to fit the plot, regardless of whether it's historically accurate or not. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So in this part, I'm just going to talk about what I like in the film, what I dislike, talk a little bit about the reviews it received, and then rate it out of 10 myself. So to begin with, I'm going to contradict myself, because I know in my episode on the Temple of Doom, I said that was my favourite Indiana Jones opener. 
I don't know if it's just because this is the one I watched last, but no, no, this is my favourite Indiana Jones opener. Like, the whole thing just put a massive smile on my face. First of all, River Phoenix was just phenomenal as a young Indiana Jones. I thought he did the part massive justice. And it's quite interesting because apparently, according to him anyway, he said that he didn't actually base his betrayal off of Indiana Jones. He based it off of the mannerisms of Harrison Ford, which is quite interesting, actually. Uh, you know, basing the betrayal off of the real life actor as opposed to the character. But there's also just like lots of little bits that I really enjoy here. Like, for instance, the part where he's on the train and he's got the whip and he uses it and he cuts his chin. Because Harrison Ford actually has a scar in that location. And it's just a nice little detail that's not referenced at all throughout the films, but is clearly visible. And it just shows how that scar got there. It's just awesome. Also, the fact that at the beginning of this scene, he's not afraid of snakes. But then we see how he became afraid of snakes. And we see why, as an adult, Indiana Jones is afraid of them. It's just all so reminiscent of the film as a whole in that there are so many little details that add up to such a great film. It's so obvious that love and attention was put into this movie. Even when you're looking at the villain in this scene with young Indiana Jones, he kind of looks like Indiana Jones in a different universe. You know, like, for instance, if Harrison Ford had never been cast as Indiana Jones, he would be one of the people who could have stepped into the role instead. And that even goes to the point where at the end you find out that the, the very hat the villain is wearing is the one that Indiana Jones wears when he's older. Like, you know, he gives Indiana Jones the hat. It's just so awesome. Like, I feel that's not even mentioning a tenth of the reason this scene is so good. But the fact of the matter is, the story doesn't end there because then you skip forward by, I think it's 24 years where you have Indiana Jones in a ship and he's getting beaten up by these guys and then you see this very villain just much older coming out and you find out that Indiana Jones has been going after the cross of Colorado for the entire time it's an entire story arc in the space of 15 minutes and it just shows the obsession that Indiana Jones has with it but also, it shows that Indiana Jones is a complete hypocrite when it comes to this. Because later on in the film, we find out that his father has this obsession with the Holy Grail and that he's going after it, even if it costs him everything. Indiana Jones massively judges his father for this. But he's doing exactly the same thing here with this cross. It's such good writing and it's something that could be so easily missed. And honestly... Even on this, what, like, 20th watch through, I was noticing things that I'd never seen before because there's so many subtle little mannerisms between him and his father. Ooh, and breathe. Moving on. So there's a bit early on, I spoke about it in the uh, historical accuracy section, where Indiana Jones is teaching in the classroom. And he says that archaeology isn't about glamorous locations, there are no maps leading to ancient treasure, and X never marks the spot. As I kind of said, I like this scene purely because it's the film poking fun at itself, because all of these things happen during the course of the film. 
I quite like the character of Elsa in this film because I feel she subverts expectations. I will say for this part, there are going to be a few spoilers. So if you want to skip forward a few minutes, that's that's fair enough. Um, but ultimately, well, with the former Indiana Jones films, you have first you have Marion and then you have Willie. They're not necessarily stereotypical characters. I, I suppose Willie might be a little bit, but they're quite clearly good characters. They're quite clearly the love interest. And they kind of make it so that it feels like Elsa is going to be filling that role, but then suddenly she turns out to be a you know a bad guy, essentially. And I, I quite like that. I think that's really good. But I also like the fact that, say, during the book burning scene, you can see she is quite clearly a bit torn up by it and she doesn't really agree with what's going on there. So although you don't entirely get to know everything about her character, you can see that there's more to her than simply just an evil villain. I, I like that. I know there are a few people who don't particularly like her character. I do. I think she plays a part really well. Also, I know I've alluded to this a little bit, but I honestly feel that Sean Connery in this film was absolutely phenomenal. That there was literally no one they could have gotten better to play Indiana Jones' father, in my opinion. I love the fact that both Indiana Jones and his father have very similar mannerisms. They have very similar ways of looking at the world almost, but they can't see it and they hate those elements of each other. It kind of shows how blind they are. And it's one of those things that I think everyone has a little bit, like everyone fails to see their own flaws to some degree, or they might try and see certain flaws in themselves, but they miss other ones. And the writing here is just astounding. It captures that perfectly. So, for instance, although both characters are generally well-meaning, they also come across as incredibly arrogant. And they both hate that about each other, but they both are that. It's great. And that's not even talking about the humour found in these characters. So, for instance, in one scene you have Indiana Jones on a motorbike, like, being chased by Nazis and Sean Connery is in the sidecar next to him basically and the fact that Sean Connery just looks so unimpressed by everything that's happening even when there's like bikes flying all over the place and bursting into flames it's just hysterical to watch and you can sort of even see in this point that Indiana Jones keeps glancing over at his father hoping for a reaction hoping to see that his father's kind of almost proud of him in a way but Sean Connery just gives him nothing. <laughs> so not only is this really funny, but again, it plays perfectly into their characters and it tells you some of the subtle little motivations of their characters. And that's not even talking about the best scene in this film, in my opinion anyway, which is the, well, I call it the tank chase scene. So basically... Indiana Jones's father and their sort of like collective friend Marcus is being held in a tank by Nazis and Indiana Jones is chasing them down trying to rescue them. First things first the scene in general is incredible like there's this one bit where Indiana Jones rides down a really steep hill on a horse and I do not know how they didn't fall over during that scene. I, I mean I've taken I took about a summer's worth of um, horse riding lessons and I found it incredibly hard to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I wasn't good at it. And then there's another part where he's like hanging off of the gun of the tank as cliffs like clip his side and things like that. It's it's really incredible. But it basically all comes to a climax when Indiana Jones is on top of the tank fighting this guy and the tank is heading towards the edge of a cliff. 
the tank falls off with Indiana Jones and this Nazi still on it, basically. And so Indiana Jones's father thinks that he's died. And don't get me wrong, it's quite obvious that he's not died, but it's one of those points where it doesn't matter that that point is obvious. Because what matters here is the reaction of Sean Connery, so Indiana Jones's father. Because he, he well, as understandably, looks really really sad but he also looks like he's just had this realization and he's gaining all of this regret because he basically says he's gone and i didn't tell him anything and he sort of alludes to the fact that he wasn't ready to tell indiana jones all of the things he needed to tell him and the thing i found about this scene is well, first of all, it's one where you see the characters grow the most because they have a newfound appreciation for each other. But it's also a scene that I think, as I grow older, I, I feel like I understand it more and more. Like, as I, you know, live my own life, as I make my own mistakes, as I have my own regrets, you know, not saying I don't have positive things as well, but that's they're the bits that are important here, it becomes very easy to realise all of the things you have, all of the things you're taking for granted after you've lost them. I think this is all incredibly human, to be honest, and I do honestly think this is one of the best scenes in any Indiana Jones film. In fact, maybe any film, full stop. Right. Anyway, moving on to something a little less morbid. <laughs> um, I will just say... Even outside of Harrison Ford and Sean Connery, there were some phenomenal performances in this. As I said, I thought that Alison Doody and River Phoenix put in phenomenal performances. But we also see the return of John Rhys Davies as, as Salah in this film. And I'm sorry, but he's great. How can you not love Salah? He's, he's a fantastic character. But even when it comes to Denham Elliott, who plays Marcus in the film, I think his part's really underrated. He's actually a really good character, but people don't seem to speak about him for some reason. I guess it is just because there are so many good performances in this film. Also, just the ending of this film, I think, is great as well. Like, all of the little traps and puzzles leading into um, the room where the Holy Grail is, I think they're all really well done. And even when they get to the room with the Holy Grail, I feel that the puzzle of which one is the Holy Grail has a very kind of medieval legend feel about it. You know, the idea of picking either the expensive, fancy-looking cup or the cheap carpenter's cup. I, I loved that. I thought that was a really effective way of introducing the, the Holy Grail because it, well, it basically subverted expectations one point that I was a little bit sad about for this film is that they cut Pat Roach's fight scene with Indiana Jones. So, for reference, Pat Roach, he was a sort of stuntman slash wrestler who appeared in the first... Well, he does appear in this film as well, just in a very small role. But So in the first film, he has a fight with Indiana Jones by a plane uh, towards the end of the film. And then in the Temple of Doom, he plays one of the thuggy cult. And again, Indiana Jones has like the big man fight with him. And in this one, there was supposed to be another one where he played a Gestapo officer, but the scene got cut. I do understand why they cut it, because I think it would have ruined the pacing of the film. But it is sad that he didn't get his scene, because 
it was sort of becoming a nice little tradition that he would have his little fight scene with Indiana Jones. In terms of the reviews for this film, on IMDb it has an 8.2 out of 10 and is frequently seen as the best of the trilogy. In particular, Sean Connery is highly praised here. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 84%, with an audience score of 94. The general consensus here is that it's a lot more light-hearted than the other Indiana Jones films, and that once again, the chemistry between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery is highly praised. I mean, I can't argue with this. I do personally think that 84% is surprisingly low. I know that's a high score, but... I see this as one of the best films of all time, so I am admittedly incredibly biased. For myself, I can't give this film anything less than 10 out of 10. I know I've kind of, I feel like I say this with all of them, and it might just be a case of the last Indiana Jones film I saw is my favourite Indiana Jones film, but this right now is my favourite Indiana Jones film. I do think without a shadow of a doubt, this film of the three original Indiana Jones films has the best writing like by quite a large margin and that's not saying that the other ones don't have good writing they do it's just this one is on another level also i can't help but agree sean connery was incredible in this film and the relationship between indiana jones and his father was a real highlight Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed making it. If you have enjoyed it and you haven't already done so, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment? And join me on Monday, where we shall be looking at episode two of Moon Knight. And then join me again on Thursday, where we shall be examining Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I hope you all enjoy the rest of your week and see you then.